You're listening to a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Greetings and welcome to In Search of Wisdom. On today's episode, my guest is Professor Emily Austin, the author of the new book, Living for Pleasure, an Epicurean Guide to Life. Living for Pleasure is part of the Guides to the Good Life series by Oxford University Press. And as many of you know, I'm a huge fan of the series. It's dedicated to the idea that philosophy can, as it was hundreds of years in the ancient world, a way of life. And Professor Austin's book is another wonderful addition to the series. In the conversation, Emily and I discuss finding philosophy, who is Epicurus and why his philosophy matters today, finding tranquility, pleasure, virtue, gratitude, the fear of death, wisdom in daily life, and much more. But before we begin the conversation, I have just one quick announcement, and that is I'm offering a free five-week Wisdom 101 course called The Timeless Art of Leading a Life, starting today or on Wednesday, 18 January, depending on when you're listening. The course consists of an email meditation every Monday, along with a live meetup every Wednesday at noon Eastern. We're going to explore timeless perspectives, principles, and practices to help us live our highest good. You can learn more and register at perennialleader.com slash leading a life. Again, the course is completely free for listeners of the show and subscribers to our daily newsletter on Substack called Perennial Meditations. I hope to see you there. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Professor Emily Austin. Well, Emily, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Glad to have you. And today we're going to be talking about your new book, which is Living for Pleasure. An Epicurean Guide to Life. But before we get into the book, generally start with some sort of question around what initially started your search. And specifically, I'm always curious for, um, for people that are philosophers for a living, you know, how did you initially find your way to philosophy? Yeah, I think, I think we tell these origin stories to ourselves different ways, depending on what stage of life we're in. Um, And I think a lot of philosophers tell this story and they start with their childhood. And I think that's natural because we think maybe we're philosophers by nature. And so there should have been signs early on that we were a philosopher. And I think I was really inquisitive and my questions were big. So they were like about religion and truth and, and adults have all these ways I think of discouraging you from asking those questions. And they're not always, uh, they're not always explicit, so they don't say, like, don't ask that question. But they do say, 
you know, oh, well, you know, that's a question you should ask later in your life. And I also grew up in a faith tradition that didn't reward inquisitiveness. It was doubt was maybe even a sign that your soul was in mortal peril. And so I had to keep a lot of these questions about religion to myself just because uh, you weren't supposed to ask them. In fact, there was this point where, I don't know, I was maybe in ninth grade or 10th grade and I was in Sunday school. I grew up in Arkansas and they gave us a book. It was sort of like what, you know, what you should think about these big topics like evolution and death and and I thought, well, finally, I'm going to get some answers. And the first week I had, had read and prepared and had all these questions, and I started asking them, and I noticed that the, the teachers were growing increasingly uncomfortable. Mm. And, and then they just canceled the book. So they had bought this book for everyone, and I destroyed like a month's worth of lesson plan because I was just asking questions they didn't want to answer. And so there were all these both subtle and overt indications that I shouldn't be asking these questions. And so we went to, I guess, well, so I, I did find though, I read a lot of novels and I, I, in retrospect, the stuff I was underlining in the novels is kind of embarrassing, but it was mostly the questions and philosophy. So I go back and I'm underlining actual questions. Sometimes <laughs> like, uh, and so I thought maybe I wanted to be a English professor and then I got to college and discovered I didn't like literary theory, and I thought maybe I'd be a history professor. But then I took this ethics class in my sophomore year with a professor, Peg Falls Corbett. I went to this small liberal arts college in Arkansas called Hendricks. And uh, it was strange because it was sort of, you know, it's it was those questions were what you were supposed to be asking. So instead of just thinking, oh, you're permitted to ask them, it was it was the business of the class. And and she was so intense and a force of nature. And I just thought, I want to do that. So I became a philosopher. And then I got into the profession later after sort of misadventures after college. And then I went to grad school and I hated it. I really hated it. Um, in fact, I, I dropped out after my first year and uh, eventually discovered that, you know, if if I made my peace with some of the stuff about the profession that I didn't like, that I could go back. And the main reason is I wanted to teach. So I got my doctorate and I did whatever writing I needed to do to get tenure. And it was only when I started writing this book that I sort of enjoyed writing philosophy again. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I'm in it really to set up an environment for inquisitive students to ask big questions and I think that's why they like philosophy is it's one of the only places where you can do that in the academy. So it rewards, rewards a kind of behavior that wasn't rewarded when I was a kid. Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer. No, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I think that's um, really what I'm after with that opening question of, of how these insatiable searches or whatever you might call something get started. Um, and I think probably many of the listeners will connect with some of those as we're growing up, some of those questions, even if it's not related to some sort of religion or, or spiritual nature, those other, you know, big questions that are, we're kind of uncomfortable with, without having answers to, you know, when these questions are maybe posed to, to elders to follow up on something you said, though, I'm curious, you said, you know, in grad school, 
you you hated it you didn't care for it what was there any particular reason or something that comes to mind i mean i don't want to insult the profession i'm now a member of uh, yeah. but but i think it was especially my program at the time i think a lot of this has changed now but philosophy was very antagonistic and competitive and i thought I had come out of this college environment that was very supportive and I went into an environment where people just wanted to destroy whatever anyone else said. So the the method for a colloquium was for someone would get up and give an argument and then people would just try to tear it apart and the winner <laughs> and in fact it was kind of competitive was the person who asked the question that the person couldn't answer. And I just wasn't prepared for that. Uh and and it seems I don't know, it seems not so much petty, but it did seem antagonistic in a way I didn't like. And so I quit. But this is sad, but I kind of realized I had always wanted to be a professor. And that was the only thing anyone would let me be a professor of at that point. And I went back to graduate school and I, I actually I had good friends and I enjoyed parts of it, but it was always with the idea that if I finished, I could get a job teaching. Yeah. Um, so it's still, I mean, I got used to the antagonism. In fact, at this point, I think philosophers have realized that's turning people away from philosophy and, and my department is very congenial. So people will ask difficult questions, but not in, in a, in a, with the intention of scoring points. Mm. Maybe that's a, a great transition to talk about this school of, of Epicurus. Um, and maybe before we'll, we'll, we'll talk in a moment about who is Epicurus and maybe define some terms and things like that. But you talk about in the book of how these opponents of particular schools, and it, it seems like that still exists and is maybe part of human nature of how this particular school is is wrong and how this particular school is is right and um i don't know i'm into the to the overlap of maybe what are some of the consistent themes like a, across particular schools um so i guess my question is like in terms of this school of philosophy you know why do you think it's maybe misunderstood? Why do we do that as humans of we have a, a tendency to maybe, you know, point out how someone is, is wrong instead of maybe how someone is, is right? Yeah, so in my classes, I try to encourage my students. In fact, I, I kind of insist, it's not an encouragement, <laughs> that they approach texts and views with what I call charity. It's this principle of charity. Mm. Um, most of these things that have lasted this long, the people who have those views have them for a reason. And, and that's true not just of you know, approaching ancient texts, but I think of interacting with human beings that we run into on a daily basis, right? So people have views for reasons. And uh, just assuming that, you know, this view is a non-starter, that there's nothing to be said for it, is uh, a sign of lazy thinking to me. So I am surprised that in, even in academic philosophy, there's a kind of brief, sort of non-reflective dismissal of Epicureanism. I, I actually call this the even the Epicureans 
maneuver. So I went to a conference on philosophy as a way of life, and occasionally the the people would say, "Well, even the Epicureans believe this." Right? So, so I I actually wrote the book because some professionals just said, "Who would possibly write a book about Epicurus?" And I thought, "Well, they need they need a good defense." So part of the book was just to give them that charitable defense that no one wants to extend to them. And why people don't want to extend that defense to them, I'm not entirely sure. Um, part of it is that um, part of me thinks that people just are suspicious of pleasure. I grew up in a childhood environment where pleasure was just sort of the road to perdition. You were, it was, it was suspicious. Um, it would take away from you know, super meaningful projects that were not pleasant. So maybe people were just opposed to hedonism. So um, for your listeners who may know very little about Epicurus, um, the main thing that I think people oppose is just that he's a hedonist. So he thinks that pleasure is what makes life good and pain uh, is what we take to be bad. And so there's a sense in which, oh, well, that's, you know, he's encouraging people to live lives of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So there's a kind of uh, fundamental misunderstanding of him as sort of a, a constant partier. Uh, so so in some sense, I think that's where the misunderstanding comes from. But I wish I wish people would take Epicurus more seriously, and so that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, I'm glad you did. Uh, I've, as I said, I've had a couple previous guests, so not at all uh, super familiar, but you know, read a couple books on on the philosophy and definitely learned some things reading your book. So maybe as a starting place for anyone not familiar with Epicurus, would you mind, you know, painting the picture of the the when and the where? Yeah, sure. So um, Epicurus was born in 341 BC. Uh, this was during what was called the Hellenistic period. Um, he grew up, he was an Athenian citizen by birth. Um, so his parents were Athenian citizens, but he actually grew up in a colony uh, in eastern Eastern Aegea and actually right off the coast of Turkey. Um, and he went back to Athens to serve in the military because that was his civic duty. And then eventually he couldn't go back to this island of Samos. And so he, he lived in eastern Greece, now Turkey, for a while. And then he came back to Athens in 306 to found uh, his philosophical school, the Garden. And he set it up on the outskirts of town, so outside of the defensive walls, but pretty close to town, really. Um, and he and his philosoph- he and his friends and uh, fellow philosophers kind of lived there together and philosophized. Um, so... But they weren't, I mean, they weren't like a commune. So they had private households, um, private possessions. And in fact, Epicurus thought uh, having communal possessions in the way that, say, Plato or early Stoics thought you should was a way of showing you didn't trust your neighbors. <laughs> so it was, it was a sort of um, a sense in which you have a community of people who have shared beliefs, but not sort of shared possessions. It's not a hippie commune. Um, so he set up this garden where he lived uh, and practice philosophy for the rest of his life. He died in uh, 270. Um, and he was, um, s- some of your your listeners are probably familiar, at least, with the Stoics. And Epicurus entered Athens at the same time, really, as uh, Zeno of Kittium founded Stoicism. So they were really, like, contemporaneous head-to-head rivals. They, they lived in an Athens in the same material circumstances and the same political circumstances. And um, so... A lot of the what you were talking about earlier, the resentment towards Epicureanism is born out of the fact that 
the Stoics and the Epicureans didn't get along, and the Stoics kind of won the day. And because they did, um, their resentment of Epicureanism kind of uh, stuck around. Um, so the Epicureans, one of the things, and this is, again, gets back to your question of why do people not like them? Epicurus was at root a natural scientist. So he thought that, um, you know, all of the ethics and stuff grows out of his view of the natural world. And he had a, you know, what we now consider a, an in, a remarkably, almost unbelievably modern physics. So he was an atomist. He thought that the world was made of atoms and void. He thought um, that the world was not created by a divine being, that the world was not providential, so that um, things were not ordered by a divine being for the good. Um, the atoms just sort of came together and created this world, and eventually they'll disperse. So he had a lot of views scientifically that would have been very controversial, in part because of their religious ramifications, right? That we weren't created by a divine being and that the world was not ordered for the good for us. And so even today, those views are very controversial. And, and so that was another reason that the Stoics were not fond of him. But what people know most about Epicurus is that he was a hedonist. Again, so he thought pleasure was the good and pain was bad. But that kind of also grew out of his science. So he was a very early adopter of evolutionary theory. So he thought that um, we were just like other animals um, and that the, the animals we have today are the ones that survived over a stretch of time. And, and so just like other animals, we're pleasure pursuers and pain avoiders. The difference between us and other animals is we have these abilities to deliberate about pleasure and pain over the long time, over the long term, because we're we're beings in time with a past, a present, and a future, and so he thought his hedonism was a kind of refined hedonism where you deliberated over time about what would produce the most pleasant life, um, and in, in that sense, he was he was a very um, he was a refined hedonist, but it came out of his view that we're just like other animals who pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Um, so I guess if you were to say who is Epicurus, you'd say he's mostly a natural scientist and his hedonism and his way of living comes out of uh, that conception of human beings as animals in a universe that was not designed. Well, thank you for that. That's that's a lovely introduction there. And I'm curious to stay with the, the idea of like defining terms as the title of your book, Living for Pleasure. You know, did did they think about pleasure the same way that maybe we, in in modern times, use the word? Yeah, I think they did. I mean, so Epicurus thought the fact that we enjoy pleasure and don't enjoy pain was just self evident. He <laughs> thought it didn't need a proof; it was just obvious. Sort of like fire is hot, pleasure is good, um, and so he he didn't even think he needed a proof for why, you know, we take pleasure to be good and why it is the good. Um, but, but I guess one thing to think about is, you know, there's physical pain, but then there's also psychological pain. Um, and there's physical pleasure, but there's also psychological pleasure. And Epicurus thought the really heavy lifting was done at the psychological level. And so psychological pain for us is primarily anxiety, right? So that's a phenomenon we're all very familiar with. And so in some sense, you know, he's he doesn't have some really weird view of pleasure and pain, but he does have this view that what we 
the best way to achieve pleasure is, in some sense, to get rid of the the background noise of anxiety, right? So he thinks we should avoid psychological pain, and and the way to do that is both through strategic living, but also um, through minimizing anxiety. And the way that he thought we should do that is by regulating our desire. So I guess the short answer is for him, the the real work is getting rid of. Uh, psychological pain and anxiety, which kind of frees up the space for, you know, enjoying the joys of life. Um, but mm-hmm. he does think that you know, the first thing you need to do is kind of get rid of that anxiety. And then once you reach a, a state he calls ataraxia, um, it's a sort of a, a state where you have the absence or at least the minimization of psychological disturbance and then the presence of pleasure. So I like to think of this as he thinks that we have this state of sort of uh, psychological flourishing or stability. So we we're um, we feel confident about our um, our future and our current life. And then when we have that confidence, so we're not anxious about the future. Um, we're not anxious about getting things that we need. Then that's a really good state. And then we can select these joys that kind of adorn life. Um, so really, he thinks you, what we want is this tranquility. And part of tranquility is that then you can experience all of these small joys of living. To me, that seems in some sort of similar way with with other wisdom traditions of as the Stoics, as you, you mentioned, Buddhism, maybe this idea of the project of finding tranquility. Are there some similarities? Um, yeah, I think there are some similarities. I mean, all of these traditions are trying to get you to a psychological state that's good. Um, and then the question is, you know, how do they do that? So one thing about Epicurus, so he thinks you're supposed to get rid of anxiety. And the way that you do that is by regulating your desires, right? And so if you desire something and you're unsure whether you'll get it, especially if you want it really badly, then that will cause you anxiety because you'll have this uncertainty, and so one way to get rid of anxiety, you might think, is just to just to get rid of all needs, right? Just say, like, I don't desire anything. And once you don't desire anything, then you have no anxiety about getting anything. But, I mean, that's a kind of scorched-earth conception of um, needs. And, and Epicurus doesn't adopt that, right? So he thinks we really do have needs. And what we need to do is strategically fulfill them. So he he divides desires into three kinds. And he he uses these really cumbersome terms, which is uh, natural and necessary, natural and unnecessary, and unnatural and unnecessary. And I couldn't write that a million times in the book. And so I labeled them necessary desires, extravagant desires, and corrosive desires. And so he thinks uh, the necessary ones, we really have to make a priority of getting them. And they include things like, food and water, um, basic medicine, but also friendship and a kind of working knowledge of science. And so unlike some other traditions, he thinks we need those things. And if we don't have them, we'll be anxious. And so we have to focus on them. Um, And those include things like friendship again. And then there are these extravagant desires, which there's not a very good word for these desires, but they're the sorts of things that's okay to desire, and it's really okay to enjoy when they come along. But you can't get committed to having them, right? You can live a satisfied life without them. And these are, in some sense, sort of more, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, extravagant versions of necessary desires. So, for instance, instead of 
water, you might have um, a tasty beer, or instead of um, you know beans, you might have cheese. Um, but you know, and those things do kind of give you joy, but they're not strictly necessary. So Epicurus、mm-hmm. thinks again, it's okay to really want these things, right? It's okay to want a nice meal. It's okay to want a vacation. It's okay to you know want free time and leisure for things.、Um, and and so if it comes along, you should enjoy it. And so, unlike other traditions, I think he has a much more capacious conception of what kinds of things you might desire, and that it's okay to desire them. And and then there's this third class of desires, the the corrosive ones, and those are for things that、um, are for I guess he calls them unlimited. So they're the sorts of things that you can always desire more of. So、um, one for you can always desire more money. So it's、uh, you never. It's, it's, there are sorts of things people might say you can never have too much. You can never be too popular. You can never be too wealthy.、Um, you can never be too powerful. And he thinks that those are inherently unsatisfiable because you'll always want more. And so he thinks that we should limit our desires. And and so for things like power and money, any unlimited desire we should just get rid of.、Um, so the short answer is that a lot of Theories, even Stoicism, will say we need nothing really other than virtue. We don't need food or water,、um, and and that these other things are not sort of good or don't add value to life. And Epicurus thinks no, a good piece of cheese is actually quite nice, <laughs> and so you should enjoy it if it comes along. Just don't think your your tranquility or the value in your life depends on it. As you as you're talking about it, I I was thinking、um, in maybe modern terms of maybe a decade ago, minimalism became popular. There's the tiny house type of type of thing of you know how much space do you really need? You know, is there a connection? Would there would they be in the category of maybe modern day minimalism? I'm not really sure that they necessarily would. They would definitely think that you should be able to be happy as a minimalist if life circumstances make it the case that、uh, minimalism is what's available and easiest and least anxiety-producing.、Um, but, but I don't think they would be committed to the idea that we must be minimalists. That we must all live in、mm-hmm. tiny houses or、um, yeah. you know, retreat to the woods. But there is something to minimalism. I mean, I spent the summer living in this tiny wooden camper in Wyoming, and I had never done anything like that before. And I was there with a friend who, in fact, ran a tiny house company. So it's strange that you ask this question because I just spent the summer doing it, and it was very weird to come back to my house. It was almost like my tiny, my actually quite small house seemed huge, <laughs> and and so there is a sense in which they, I think, they would enjoy. Life in whatever circumstances they found themselves in,、um, but they wouldn't say like, "Oh, I should have as little as possible." <laughs> they would think if you're attached to a lot of stuff and you would be disappointed not to have it, then that's really bad. And if it turns out the only way you can get rid of those desires to acquire or、um, to have more is to just leave that all behind and live in a wooden camper in Wyoming, then maybe that would be good for you.、Mm-hmm. But. I think if you can have stuff and not be invested in it and not think it's necessary, then I think he thinks you're fine. You see, I just don't have—I mean, I just don't have an Epicurus in my mind as a scold. 
right? I think yeah. he thinks people find pleasure in a lot of different things, and as long as it's not harmful, then that's okay. It seems to connect with some of the stuff that the um, Stoics talk about of maybe reminding themselves, like even if it's this glass of wine is nice, but in the in the background it's it's just a. Uh, rotten grapes if you will and you know there is this thing of uh preferred and different where it's appreciating it but then reminding yourself that it's not needed yeah i think there is a sense though in which i mean people have different views about what the preferred and difference are that in fact mm. i think that's a place where a lot of stoics go back and forth in a way that i don't yeah. think the the original Greek Stoics really, I mean, in fact, they had a disagreement about whether there were, whether the idea of something as a preferred and different makes any sense at all. Mm. Um, but the main thing is that they, they didn't take those things to be good in and of themselves. And, and the, the Epicureans think pleasures are good. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> so there is a sense in which, you know, like you might be enjoying, uh, you, you know, I guess the other thing is that, so there's this idea of, you know, uh, I think that the, the Epicureans and the Stoics might agree, you know, wine is nice, but not necessary for happiness. But the Epicureans do think some stuff is necessary for happiness. And the Stoics don't, you know. They think you can be chained to a wall, starving, friendless, and they want to continue to insist that you have everything you need for happiness as long as you have your virtue. And those, the Epicureans think, no, <laughs> you need stuff. We're, we're animals and, and we have needs. And so, you know, those, the Epicureans would at least say, oh, yeah, so I can do without wine, but I really need water. <laughs> and the Stoics yeah. were like, no, 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 I don't even need that. Um, so, yeah, there are some similarities. Neither of them is going to think that you have to have luxuries. But the Epicureans can say, well, they're good, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we can transition into friendship because that that seems to be an important, you know, aspect of um, of this guide to life. What would you say, you know, Epicurus can teach us moderns about friendship? Yeah, so you're right. Friendship was central to Epicureanism, and Epicurus was actually a horrible writer. His Greek is really bad. And in fact, uh, Cicero mocked him for that. Lots of people mocked. They treated Epicurus as though he were a bit of a simpleton. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know whether you know, that's just because of the way he wrote Greek, but his, his Greek is very uh, almost turgid. And so one of the only times he waxes poetic is when he talks about friendship. So he'll say something like, friendship dances around the world uh, telling us to you know awaken to blessedness and that in fact it's the greatest contributor to happiness and and so this is actually what i think my students and i think readers probably find most interesting is epicurus's treatment of friendship because he thinks we need them for our happiness so again going back to the stoics right we don't need friends right there are no needs right? friends friends are a preferred and different like it's good to have them but I could do without them. <laughs> and Epicurus would think that's insane. Um, in part because we're dependent creatures. We're not self-sufficient. And also because we get a lot of joy from interacting with at least people that we trust and cherish. So I think just this idea that we need friends um, is, is crucial to Epicurus. And 
we're not resilient or self-sufficient. And then the other thing is that I think culturally, if you look around, all these people are announcing there's a loneliness epidemic. We don't have friends. And so having friends, we have to make it a priority and we have to learn how to have them. And so I think many people don't have friends. And then uh, when they try to make friends, I think Epicurus thinks they don't do it well. So you need to choose a certain kind of friend. You need to choose a reliable friend for Epicurus. So this idea that um, the thing that matters most is that you can trust your friends you and trust them to be there for you. You can trust them to, you know, look out for your well-being. And a lot of people choose friends uh, that they can't trust. And then Epicurus also thinks that part of trusting someone is that you value the friendship for reasons a person controls and that are stable. So let's just say, uh, take this corrosive desire for wealth, right? If I choose a friend because they're wealthy, then, um, you know, when they stop being wealthy, then I, I might not be friends with them. Or, you know, drinking buddies are an ideal case of this, right? So if you, you get together to drink and one person stops drinking, then the friendship loses its basis. And so Epicurus thinks you want friends you can trust who value you for stable reasons, like your kindness or your reliability or your generosity. And so a lot of people choose friends based on power or the desire for wealth or status. And Epicurus thinks those are unstable friendships. So Epicurus thinks we don't have friendships. And when we do, we often choose them poorly. And then even those people who make good friends, right, who have these valuable friends, they often don't prioritize them. So Epicurus thinks that one of the things that gives just temporary joy to our life or transient joy to our life is just time we spend enjoying our friendships. But then also he thinks that um, when we undergo, uh, suffer misfortune or undergo trials, um, our friends will be there for us. But also what we do to get through them is we reflect on the pleasures of our lives. And most of those pleasures he thinks come with, come from experiences with our friends. So we remember these things we did, whether it was you know, an afternoon in the park or going to a concert, or a long personal conversation. And if you don't prioritize your friends, then you don't have those memories. So he thinks you know, we need the friends, we, we need to have a certain kind of friend, and then we need to prioritize them. And that way we'll have people there when we go through the bad times in life and we'll have memories that help us deal with those bad times. So I think that his conception of friendship is just really rich um, mm. and uh, meaningful. But. I do as well. It seems to be such an important topic. Um, I do this Monday newsletter where I try to bring in different, you know, similar thoughts from people. And you think of Seneca, who's, Obviously, someone you write in the book who quotes Epicurus often, you know, writes very highly of friendship. Aristotle, the Buddha, many of these wisdom traditions place this value on friendship, but we don't necessarily connect it with with wisdom. I'm, I'm curious as a question, you were talking earlier about maybe the removal of desire and relationships can be so tough you know just like a friendship maybe there's this desire for your particular friend to behave in a particular way so it's like it becomes this controlling there's desire there any you know practical tips or strategies that come to mind from epicurus to to have a healthy relationship as we you know navigate life 
Um, so I guess first, you know, Seneca didn't approve of Epicurus's model of friendship, and neither did Cicero. This was a big difference between the Stoics and the Epicureans, um, because um, Epicurus thought that part of friendship was being able to rely on your friends to be there, um, and and so the Stoics don't like that kind of dependency, right? Because you 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 depend on someone else. And they didn't like that. So they thought that friendship was a, an opportunity to exercise their own virtue rather than a kind of need that they had for other people. And so Epicureans are really distinctive in that they think you need friends for your own well-being. Now, as for practical strategies for choosing friends, I think one thing that I found interesting about Epicurus, and I think this is true, is that you, you kind of need to choose friends that are the sort of person you want to be, because the people who surround you are the people who really influence all sorts of little things. And I think that's why they kind of chose to live in a community. We're very susceptible to bad influences, I think. And so if you're choosing friends who you don't want to be, that's actually kind of a bad sign. Um so then in that sense, you you don't have as many instances where you really wish your friend would do something else. Um, but I do think that we, you know, we do have to also recognize that human beings are flawed. And so when we want our friends to be perfect people, that doesn't it just seems like an irrational desire. Right. Mm. We just want them to be people who contribute goodness to our lives and that we can trust. So I think in some sense, one of the other things that, and maybe this is just my read on Epicurus, the Stoics have this kind of perfectionist model. And I don't think the Epicureans do. I think uh, they think you try to live the best life you can given your natural limitations and dispositions and the environment you find yourself in. And so uh, I, I don't think they expect your friends to be perfect. And <laughs> if you did, that would that would probably just lead to disappointment. It's another way of actually it's another way of having a corrosive desire to want something to be perfect, right? It can be better and better and better. And I think they think that's unhealthy. The uh the topic of of virtue has come up and comes up in, in this particular school and the idea of living unnoticed, maybe in you know, as you as you mentioned, the the garden is kind of outside of, of the city. You know, I'm I'm curious in terms of uh, you know what that might look like today, and also you know the idea of of virtue. You have a particular chapter on on virtue, and you write some critics of Epicurus thought. He encouraged Epicureans to unreflectively uh, memorize and recite his, his writings without concern of comprehension, and kind of this unfair criticism. And maybe are there some unfair criticisms of Epicureanism around virtue as well that might come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that in some sense, the criticisms surrounding virtue are the ones that I consider perhaps the most fair. So there are some criticisms of Epicurus that I think an Epicurean has to kind of grapple with. And and one of them is that Epicurus, you know, he thinks pleasure is good in and of itself and is the only thing good in and of itself, which means it's... Um, it's the only thing that's, um, I guess, good, not for what it produces. It's just good in itself. And and he thinks that virtue is not that. So the Stoics thought virtue was intrinsically good. So for Epicurus, virtue is good insofar as it produces pleasure. 
But if it didn't produce pleasure, then it wouldn't be good. And he kind of just asserts that you can't live pleasantly without virtue. So it just turns out virtue is instrumental to pleasure always, <laughs> just sort of magically, yeah. you might think. Um, and I think that that's true. I think that you can't live without anxiety, without um, actively pursuing virtue. But there are some people who think, well, look, these psychopaths or sociopaths, right? What if they're perfectly tranquil and engaging in all of these reprehensible behaviors? Um, so I do think that there's a, a fair criticism there, but I think that insofar as a normal person wants to achieve tranquility and joy, they need to be able to be a good friend. They need to know how to interact with people. They need to take risks for people to gain their trust. So they need to be courageous. So I do think that's a fair criticism, but I think Epicurus has an answer to it. Um, so you asked about virtue. Uh, what was the other, other unfair criticisms? <laughs> um, the other unfair criticism was this idea of memorizing or oh. reciting his his writings which i've heard before of just some of these maybe unfair criticisms that uh people listeners may have be familiar with yeah so i think um the reciting one what's interesting is the um the later epicureans distilled epicurus's thought into this fourfold remedy right? and epicurus himself never did that and so the fourfold remedy can come across as a little bit of a um, sort of like a mantra or something, right? So it's, uh, I think that in some sense, like that leads to this idea that you could just like chant to yourself some Epicureanism and be fine. Um, but Epicurus, you know, his writings are pretty rich and difficult. Um, but I do think there's a sense in which, um, you know, uh, academics or philosophers tend to over-intellectualize what you need to live well. And so I think if you, you accept these doctrines, you don't have to have these super worked out defenses of them, right? So I don't think, I mean, in some sense, I think you can think this is the way to live. I agree with this without having to sustain critical scrutiny and a combative discussion with another philosopher. So I think there is some middle ground in there. You don't just, you know, unreflectively uh, recite stuff. But I also think that um, you don't have to be a philosopher to be an Epicurean. Um, and I think that, you know, some of the criticisms of Epicurus come from people who say, oh, well, you know, he would he would just tell you this and you would feel better and you wouldn't have to even engage in philosophy. And part of me sometimes thinks, well, why should you have to engage in philosophy? I mean, if it if you think it's right and you can live by it, do you have to have a worked out defense of it? I mean, Epicurus has one. I think the Epicurean philosophers did. But there is a sort of fetishization of reason sometimes, I think. And I think Epicurus saw that. So he says that you know, practical reasoning is, or you know, prudence is more important than philosophy. So I think that he thinks you can adopt Epicureanism without knowing the nitty-gritty details of the other schools and why your philosophy is better and how to object to their views and... That seems to be such an important point, you know, of maybe making life more difficult than it than it needs to be or where we place our our limited attention. Something I love you write in one of the chapters that Epicurean gratitude is my favorite part of the philosophy. 
And it's this, you know, 2,500 years ago, and there's still these quotes from Epicurus about gratitude that, that live on today. If someone was to do a quick Google search and, uh, could you maybe talk about gratitude and, you know, his, his thoughts there? Yeah, sure. Um, so I actually, um, I did, I, I thought about gratitude some, but I read this really great paper by, uh, a, another academic named Ben Ryder, and he was really grappling with the role of gratitude because it hadn't gotten a lot of attention in the scholarship. And and gratitude plays a, a, a distinctive role in Epicurus. So there's a sense in which, of course, we wake up one morning and think like, oh, I'm grateful for being alive today. Um, but for Epicurus, gratitude, a lot of it is um, cashed out in this sort of distinctive way, which is um, in memorable experience. So he thinks that when we undergo some misfortune, you know, uh, ranging from sort of a inconvenient surgery to a grave misfortune, um, one of the ways that we can get through it is to um, reflect on the good things of our life. So it's a kind of distraction. Um, and so he thinks that one of the things you should do is just devote a lot of your energies to prioritizing memorable experiences. And those are generally going to be uh, with friends. Um, they're going to be things like, you know, even if it's just like taking a walk on a beautiful day rather than spending the afternoon surfing your phone, you're going to remember that walk. Um, and so he thinks that what you're doing when you're cultivating gratitude is prioritizing memorable experiences, simple pleasures, um, so that when you fall on these hard times, you can um, rely on those. You can distract yourself with those memories. And so one of the things I like is that um, I do think that people do this. So I tell in the book about a good friend of mine, actually, who was in Wyoming with me. And he was um, he was shot with an arrow from a compound bow in his stomach. And he spent a couple of weeks in the hospital. And while he was there, he was about 22 at the time. And uh, he he realized that one of the only ways to entertain yourself when you're trapped in a hospital bed is with your memories. And so he pledged that he would privilege memories and experiences over all of these other things that were not memorable. And, and this is, of course, inadvertently. It's not like he had read any Epicurus at all. Um, but that was a way of realizing this role of experience in um, Epicurean philosophy, both giving you pleasure during the day that you're grateful for, and then you know, building a life of gratitude that you can rely on during hard times. And that definitely sounds like practical wisdom to me. <laughs> yeah, you... <laughs> it's, it is. I mean, one reason it's practical is it's really, it's sort of a decision procedure. You can incorporate yeah. it into your day. You can ask yourself, is this memorable? Am I doing something I'll remember or value? And it's amazing when you start practicing that, you realize how many things that you do are completely immemorable, or how many times you pass up opportunities to do something small and memorable, uh, to do something you know completely inconsequential. So yeah, it's very practical in that you can, it's one of those things you can incorporate into your daily life. Yeah. And you talk about this task of, of writing our own text against ingratitude. Could you speak to that for the, for the listeners? I love this. Yeah, sure. So um, at the end of the book, I kind of had to you know, make sense of how you might adopt some of Epicureanism in your daily life, in part because I wrote the book for a series put out by Oxford called The Guides to the Good Life. And 
I felt like there needed to be some guide part in it. Um, you don't want to write a book about how to be an Epicurean and not tell anyone how to do it. Um, and, and so there's a sense in which one thing you can do is just read Epicurus. And that's great because that he didn't, I mean, well, he probably did write a lot, but we don't have a lot. So you can do it really quickly. But the other thing is that Epicurus thought we all have sort of peculiar weaknesses, whether that's, you know, in our nature itself. So some people are just more prone to fear or a result of our background, um, our childhood or experiences. And so we all have sort of distinctive, peculiar um, struggles. And one of the challenges of being an Epicurean is becoming aware of those and trying to figure out how to get around them practically. So, you know, some people are, um, have trouble with gratitude or some people have trouble with, um, you know, desiring a lot of money or some people really want honor more than they would like. Um, and, and so Philodemus, this Epicurean, thought that one way to kind of combat that is to figure out, you know, what your particular problem is and then try to write about why it's wrong. <laughs> right? So try mm -hmm. to write a short treatise about, you know, against ingratitude or against greed. Or And one of the things I discovered when I wrote the book, and this is kind of interesting, I wrote the book to be a defense of Epicureanism, but I didn't think of myself as an Epicurean. But, you know, trying to inhabit Epicurus's thought and apply it to all of these um, practical things was super fascinating because I, I had to work it out for myself. So, you know, you think something, well, greed is bad, but then you think, well, why? <laughs> and having to figure that out, why exactly he would think that and whether it was correct was really meaningful for me. It, it, it actually um, kind of helped me make sense of the, a lot of the values I have. And so I, I assume that uh, he thinks that anyone who did what I did would gain from it. Um, so writing about your peculiar weaknesses and trying to make sense of them, I think is it crystallizes a lot of stuff. I love that. I, I plan to do it here shortly, hopefully before the before the end of the year myself. Don't worry, I won't ask what your peculiar weaknesses are. <laughs> <laughs> but let me ask, as we start to wind down on time, you, you mentioned fear there early in the conversation, anxiety, and the the fear and and anxiety around death is something that you know epicureans are, are known for so maybe if you could share a bit as a way to to wrap up the conversation of you know what we can learn uh on on thinking about death yeah so i think um a lot of the attention that's paid to epicurus on death um focuses on this idea that you know epicurus like the stoics actually like a lot of the ancient greek philosophers um, didn't think the soul was immortal, so he thought we um, that death is annihilation. And you know, one of the ways that people um, assuage their fear of death is to think that we're immortal. And Epicurus forecloses that option, and so he needs an argument for why you should not fear death, even though we're not immortal. So there's a, a famous argument he gives about why annihilation isn't bad, because when you're not conscious, it can't be bad. So you need to experience something for it to be bad. Death is the absence of experience, and so it can't be bad. It can't be bad or good, so there's no reason to fear it or hope for it. And that's where most of the attention uh, on Epicureanism goes. And I think there's a famous argument. Lots of philosophers take it to be pretty much the central argument about death. But I think there's another feature of Epicureanism on death that gets much less attention, which is that this desire to live forever or even the desire to live a really long time 
is itself a kind of corrosive desire because it's unsatisfied, right? So if you think I have to have tomorrow and then I have to have the next day, then you're always going to be anxious and you're always going to be unsatisfied because what you're saying is like this, this day, this life I have now is just not enough, right? And he thinks that the way that you get tranquility is to think I have what I need and this is a good life, what I've got. And if you think I need more, then you, you don't have that feeling. And so I think that actually part of getting rid of this desire to live forever, um, which is a kind of fear of death, is to think, no, life is pretty good. And, I, you know, it may not be great, but I've got what I need. Uh, I've got friends. I've got things I'm grateful for. And this is enough. And so in that sense, I think it's also not just a, an argument against, you know, wanting to live forever immortally, but also just wanting a really long life, a kind of dissatisfaction with what you have. And, you know, cultivating that attitude is really difficult. But I think if you can, um, it helps you deal with this, you know, this anxiety you have that, you know, you, you could even, you know, die young. Um, so there, there are those two elements of Epicurean, Epicureanism on death. And the one that I think gets less attention is this one about not wanting to live a really long time, not just like not wanting to live immortally. Yeah, it's really interesting as you describe that. It's in the corrosive desire category. Yeah, it makes that makes sense. It definitely definitely is. Well, I'm super grateful for your time, Emily. We're um, at this final wrap up question that we ask most guests, and you can take this from a Epicurean view, or or really any way that you want to take it. And it's how do you you know define or think about wisdom in daily life? Yeah, so I think that's, I mean, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I mean, philosophers tend to say like, oh, well, I don't, I don't know, that's a constant search or something. Um, but I do think that uh, going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with Epicurus, I think philosophers, we tend over time to over-intellectualize wisdom. So um, you know, Plato thought you needed to know the form of the good, and in order to know the form of the good, if you read the Republic, you actually have to understand a kind of math that had never been invented. So Plato says, well, you need this math, and it actually hasn't been discovered yet, but it's necessary for becoming wise. And the, you know, the Stoics say the sage is rarer than the phoenix. And, and interestingly, they say that if you're not a sage, then you're unhappy. And you're just as unhappy as everybody else who's not a sage, whether, you know, there's a vicious person or you know, someone who's aspiring to be good. Everybody's just as unhappy. And so there are these really austere views of wisdom that are super intellectualized. But uh, I think I'm more drawn over time to the more common view, that pre-reflective view, that there are sort of wise elders. There are people who have gotten through life with experience and know how to interact well with other people and are comfortable with themselves and, you know, don't desire honor and don't, you know, they just, they're just themselves. Uh, and so I think I'm actually more drawn to that now. And I think the overly intellectualized view is, again, a kind of fetishization of what I do for a living. And I <laughs> want to make sure that I, I'm careful about that. Because I think, personally, I've become happier as I've um, just learned how to... Um, care for other people and interact with them uh, and 
be prudent about my own life and get rid of some of these things that I do think are harmful. Like, uh, you know, it's a constant struggle to be like, no, I don't need more money. <laughs> and it's okay if that person doesn't think I'm a good philosopher. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got a really good life here, I should stop wanting these other things. And so I think those are, for me, the, the more pressing uh, practical issues of wisdom. So I have, I guess I have adopted the Epicurean view that prudence is more important than philosophy and that wisdom lies in prudence about living this kind of tranquil, satisfied life. But ask me, yeah, ask me tomorrow and I might have a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a, a wonderful way to wrap it up. Again, I'm, I'm truly grateful for your time to come on and, and, and share your, your wisdom and, and time with us. Where would you point any uh, any listeners that that might be interested in in your work in the world and learning more? Um, so I guess one of the nice things about this book I wrote is that it's accessible to everyone. So if if you wanted to read anything I've written, then it would be Living for Pleasure, um, because otherwise you need to know Greek and it's sort of inside baseball of academia. Um, so I would say you know if you wanted to read the stuff I read, uh, then Epicureanism or Living for Pleasure. And then I have a lot of recommendations in the book itself for further reading. Um, so I would say uh, maybe maybe you'll find further reading that's more gratifying than my own book, but you might start there. Well, we'll link it in the show notes so it's easy to find. I highly recommend this book and any book in the in the series. The listeners know that I'm a huge fan of this Guides to the Good Life series. I think uh, pretty much every every author has come on the show, so I'm grateful to add you to the list. So, Professor Emily Austin, thank you again so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Yeah, thanks. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. 